This is working. This is working. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I'd like to ask you, please, if you'd bring your uh, cookies and the coffee and the donuts, and would you please move down front? Um, tonight we have with us National Public Radio. And I want you to listen, listen up, and, and listen good. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and bits of oral morsels we find all over the world. Whether it be on the air, on the internet, overseas, or underfoot, we scour the world of audio and skim the best off the top to play for you each week on ReSound. From National Public Radio in Washington. Let's go back in time. Today, we go back in time and take a little peek at public radio as a toddler, wobbling along, finding its legs, and trying to figure out how to tell stories in sound. We're diving into the public radio archives, rewinding our way to the 70s and 80s, and sampling from some of the fascinating, strange, and even hilarious work that was produced when public radio was without a real template. In the early days, it was a veritable playground for young producers, a sandbox, if you will. It gave them the opportunity to create new rules and then break them, to try different techniques and follow creative hunches. In just a minute, we're going to hear from a few of the producers who helped shape public radio and find out how public radio also helps shape them. We listen to radio for news, for entertainment. It keeps us informed every minute of every day. Anyone who listens to public radio, and we imagine you do listen since you're listening right now, All Things Considered is a household name, a household sound, actually. And when the familiar music comes on, it's comforting and reassuring. We know what we're about to hear. As its name suggests, All Things Considered considers stories beyond the breaking news of the day. And that has always been true. Even the very first broadcast on May 3rd, 1971, was, though a little unpolished, smart, vivid, sound-rich, and unpredictable. So let's begin at the beginning. Here's a little sampling, just a brief tour, through the very first broadcast of All Things Considered. From National Public Radio in Washington, I'm Robert Conley with All Things Considered. So this 90-minute show included, among other things, a 28-minute, sound-rich, on-the-scene segment that places the listener right in the middle of an angry protest against the war in Vietnam. Here come the police. One, two, three, four police on motor scooters. One demonstrator knocked down by a motor scooter policeman. Hit the kid. It went right through the line. Anger now. Anger of the young people. Sergeant, 
Excuse me, Jeff came in National Public Radio. Is that a technique where the men actually try to drive the bikes into the demonstrators? No, it's no technique. We're trying to go down the road and the people get in front. What are you going to do? You don't stop on a dime. Okay, now let's fast forward a bit to the first ever fluff piece on All Things Considered, introduced by Robert Connolly. In this age of unshorn locks with shagginess transformed into a lifestyle of demonstrators and demonstrations, we've been looking into the plight of barbers around the country, they of the waiting shears, and at the different methods they've found of coping but not necessarily clipping with the decline in business, with today's popularity of long hairstyles in men. One of the more ingenious solutions is in Ames, Iowa. From station WOI in Ames, Wayne Olson. And shaves are not too common in barbershops. How long has it been since you've given a man a shave, Al? Oh, about three weeks. You say you haven't given a man a shave for some three weeks, and yet I see you uh, getting all the lather out and the hot towels. What's going on here? I'm shaving the girl's leg. This is the sort of thing that might cause a rush to barbering schools, don't you think? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> is this the first time you've had your leg shaved? Yes, it is. It's Donna Humphreys uh, in the chair today, and she consented to come in and have her legs shaved, and uh, she'll be ready to wear her mini skirts and her hot pants. Do you wear hot pants? Yes, I do. Great. <laughs> so, so she'll be all set to go. Uh, what, what got you uh, started in shaving girls' legs? How long have you been and doing And that's it? just a little taste of the first All Things Considered. The rest of the show consisted of veterans reading poems about World War One. The country as one gives bread to pigeons. That time won't come again. An interview with a heroin addict. Shooting about three or four spoons of dope a day. That's and a 12-minute argument between Allen Ginsberg and his father about the pros and cons of drug use. Still is bad to take uh, LSD, I'm but only, it's dangerous. You're making so many generalizations, I'm trying to isolate one series of language things after another. One that's how the first All Things Considered ended, and that's how public radio as we know it began. Now, the show and the NPR network grew from there. But some enduring qualities were already evident even in the first broadcast. Playfulness, quirkiness, an attention to sound and scenes, and a willingness to look beyond the day's news for stories. These qualities drew a lot of creative people into public radio, including a man named Jay Allison. He of This I Believe, Lost and Found Sound, the website transom.org, and a host of other legendary projects. Before coming to broadcasting, Jay ran a storefront theater in Washington, D.C., and he raced motorcycles. We talked with him, and he described exactly how he came to produce for NPR. I was living in the basement of a friend, Larry Massett, who's also a public radio producer, and uh, living in the basement by the furnace with his dog. It wasn't a great time, Gwen, Um, (laughs) but... uh, but then a guy named Keith Talbot came over for dinner, and he was working at the newly formed National Public Radio, then on M Street. And he told all of us who were living kind of crashing in that house, hey, you guys all ought to get in public radio, which we all then promptly did, every last one of us. Uh, and that included, uh, I think, Joe Frank was hanging around at the time, and Keith and a bunch of other producers. And, and Keith also at the time had an intern named Ira Glass, who was, uh, you know, I think, 19. All of us were involved in sort of quasi-artistic activities like uh, theater, and Larry was doing music, and uh, and public radio at that time didn't know what it was. And so it was saying, 
what the heck? And so we, you know, we'd sneak in there. They had no security system. So uh, <laughs> we'd go in day and night and take the gear and tape recorders and act like we worked there and nobody really asked any questions. Coming up, you'll hear from all of the people that lived in that basement with Jay and even a few more. We'll start with a piece called Subtext, Communicating with Horses. It's a conversation between a horse communicator and a horse, imagined and voiced by none other than Jay Allison. Animals and Other Stories Subtext, Communicating with Horses Okay, what's your horse's name? Christopher. Name they give me is Christopher. What's that you're drinking there? He saw me taking this. He says, what do you have? And I said, apple cider. Well, let me have a little bit. He says, can I try some? I says, well... I'll try anything you know, once, you know. What do you like to eat? He says, I'll take anything once. Whatever's handy. I've eaten sawdust. Even sawdust. He has tasted everything. everything. Really. I get bored, that's all. He doesn't digest his food that well. Look, what'd you come here to talk about? What do you want to know? Can someone keep that mare quiet over there? Go ahead. Ask me a question. Tell me about times when you're happy. What makes me happy? Well, I like to run. I like to jump. He says I like to jump. That's right. I like to run in open country and jump. He thinks he's pretty good at it. Well, I mean, I'm not in much shape right now, but give me a few weeks, I could show you something. He's an athlete. Tell you I could jump the rest of these stable warmers into the ground. That's no contest. He thinks he's a great animal. And truth be known, I'd prefer to do it without a saddle on my back. Very strong individualist. That's right. He's got an ego. You know, he, he's, he talks like he knows what he's doing, you know, and he's just kind of tolerating these poor riders and help him out, you know. <laughs> That's right. Like back home, all alone, you know. You should have seen me jump back there. Flying is more like it. But that was another time. It feels like he's had a long ride somewhere in his life. He's gone someplace, or he was taken someplace a long ways away and back. It feels like only one way, though. Now, you don't want to get me started on that. Them valleys, the ridge line way up above, and me in between. Running, flying. I used to feel like I was cut into that place. Now, out here, I don't know, there's no... Well, it's like nothing belongs here. Nothing comes from here. Nothing grows. It's all freeways and trees from someplace else. He feels hemmed in. I said, are you afraid? No, no, I'm frustrated, I guess. I don't know. Rained last week. <laughs> he hates the rain. First time in months. The rain always does this to me. Makes it all come back. The vistas, distance. He said, I want to go down to the ocean. No, no, the ocean's fine. Loves I, the beach. I like it. But uh, when I was running under those mountains, under those rock he walls... He likes to be outside. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I asked him, I said, what would you like to do? I'd like to see it again before I die. I get, you know, like... Wanting to do something like go and watch something happening. I'd like to watch the clouds gather. He just wants to go someplace and watch something happen. Watch the big <laughs> weather come in. 
I'd like to stand in a storm and hear the earth ring. This guy is really something else. He said, I'd like to wear bells. I am thinking of canyons and lightning. I'm wet, running against the dark sky, and there is nothing more free than this. The earth is ringing, and I believe I can fly. I ask him if there's anything else he'd like. He says, nope, life's pretty good around here. He's happy. Okay? All right, thank you. That's great. Okay. Subtext. Communicating with Horses by Jay Allison with Christina Egloff. So, Communicating with Horses, what's the background? What's, what's behind that story? It's part of a series I did back in the 80s called Animals and Other Stories. And this mm-hmm. one, I, I went to do a, a documentary about an animal communicator and uh, spoke to her in Southern California. In a, She was talking to horses at a stable like it was surrounded by freeways and, um, you know, just sort of a bare patch of ground and a bunch of horses kept there for, I guess, wealthy people, probably in Orange County. And uh, she'd been brought in for the day, and different owners would bring their horses forward, and she would sit very calmly and tell the owners exactly what their horses were saying to her. Hmm. And and what what gave you the idea to actually be the voice of the horse? Well, uh, (laughs) she was so clear about what the horse was saying it's like maybe going to a foreign country and having an interpreter and you know they're not saying exactly what you said. <laughs> so at every turn, I was thinking, well, what well, what did the, the horse say there? You know, and, uh, you know, maybe she was misunderstanding him or she was getting the vocabulary but not the meaning. And uh, it also just gave me an excuse to kind of meditate on displacement and loneliness and the march of progress in a kind of unlikely way. What is it about this medium that drew you to it? And what what do you really love about it? When it works, it's just so primitive in a way. It's just, it's It's invisible and dark and it comes out of the silence and it's disembodied. And it, yet at the same time, it's utterly intimate and inside your head and so it can be it can work weird kinds of magic and it it, it still has all the elements of uh, theater and theatricality uh, it, it's a medium in time so it's structured around rhythm and character and scene and pace and climax most of those attributes of course are never used by most of modern radio it's a kind of an information delivery system or a headline service and it's used to deliver one level of content and uh and that's it but it's capable of so much more and at the time you know remote recording equipment uh, small portable tape recorders battery powered were just coming into use and so you could go out by yourself and gather you know, the sounds of the world, which now it doesn't seem quite so special. But at the time, it was like being able to map the world with a new tool. That was veteran producer and all-round public radio guru, Jay Allison. 
In their efforts to map the world with this new tool, public radio producers found stories that were joyful, bizarre, riveting, and sometimes deeply disturbing. One of the best illustrations of radio's sometimes frightening power and intimacy is a documentary called Father Cares, The Last of Jonestown, produced at NPR in the early 80s. Now, this was the story of Jim Jones, a man whose name is synonymous with a very dark and tragic chapter in American history. In November of 1978, over 900 of Jones's followers, members of the isolated Jonestown cult in Guyana, South America, committed suicide by drinking grape flavorade laced with cyanide. Unlike many other cult leaders, Jones began his career with the support of a lot of mainstream politicians in California, where his career blossomed. And throughout his rise to power and eventual infamy, Jones recorded himself for hours on end, preaching, pontificating, and proselytizing. Three years after the mass suicide, National Public Radio got a hold of Jones's tapes, which were a chilling record of the power he held over hundreds and hundreds of people. Those tapes became the basis for Father Cares. It was written by James Reston Jr. and Noah Adams and produced by Deborah Amos. A warning here, some of the tape in the story may be disturbing to some listeners. Here's an excerpt. At the end, he would say he was born out of due time, the world not ready for his message. He was too highly evolved. His principles were too pure, his commitment too deep, his love too all-embracing for this time for this planet consumed as it was with hatred and racism and greed. The most segregated institution in America is the church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. The most racist institutions are the churches. You can, hear hate. you can listen to the broadcast over and over all you can through these religious broadcasts. You can hear hate. If you just listen with a close ear, with a scrutinizing mind, you can hear hate all the time teaching people to hate one another. Perhaps Father was evil decades before. Perhaps he was insincere and cruel and even bestial from the beginning, but he was surely bold and exciting with an animal sexuality. His voice was captivating, his presence commanding, his power was overwhelming. I've got to find out who's willing to think. The truth will set It's only free. right that I get somebody to be like I am. I want you to be like me. I don't want you to worship me. I want you to be like I am. I want you to become what I am. I want you to enjoy the fearlessness that I have, the courage that I have, the compassion that I have, the love that I have, the all-encompassing mercy that I am. I want you to be what I am and something greater. I want you to give you more than I have. I want you to be greater than I am. And if you don't want to go this route, then go to hell where you want to, but don't bother me. He rose from a silent stage in the early 70s, a passive time, and gathered needed passive followers. So this is their story, too. They, too, complicit in the crime of Jonestown. He would tell them so at the end to urge them on. Father had always thought of himself as a historical figure, and therefore, knowing that everything he said was important, he recorded his descent into history. Starting early on, when the People's Temple 
was rising with enthusiasm in the Redwood Valley of California when he proclaimed he was divine. We're dealing with some serious matter. Oh, thank you, Father. And devised ways to show it. All right, thank you, because I'm going to heal you now and save you from the worst death I know, your throat being opened up and having a tracheotomy and having uh, unable to speak. I'm going to take away the hoarseness that's in the morning. Now, you just begin to vomit, and the cancer will unlodge. <laughs> unlodge. <laughs> hands class. Hands class. Oh, it's all right. Just clap your hands. I think it'll be better. This mountain shall be removed. This mountain shall be removed by the Spirit. Now, just put your hand in there and vomit. Put your hand in. Keep on clapping. She's putting her hand in her mouth. To loose it. To loose it. Feel it. It's not by might. It's not by power. by my spirit. Now. Now. I feel it loosening. Now it is. Now it is. Now it comes. There it comes. Spit it out. There it is. All of it's gone. Gone. All gone. There it is. The blood. Spit it out on the floor and on the hands. There it is. Now, where it's broken, where that tissue, the poison breaks, it'll be an awful bad taste. So give her. There it is. Spit out all the blood all over their hands there on the floor. The cancer's out of her throat. The tumor's healed. Came out of her body. Right now, spit out here before all these thousands of people present. Let's praise the name of Jesus Christ. blind another woman totally blind can't see anything when I got through with her with my power she was not only seeing fingers but she told me the color of things and told me exactly everything I held Eight in my people hand. were healed of total blindness last week in Los Angeles couldn't see there couldn't see light I'm talking about the healing ceremonies were glorious spectacles of often rather amateurish sleight of hand but Jim was always quite open about the purpose of the ceremony they do not want the healing of the mind. Heal my toe, honey. Heal my back. Heal my bottom. But don't you heal my mind because my mind is too sick. Those who didn't like these displays or later the crude language left right away. Those who stayed accepted the fraudulence to receive the message, one that became a combustible mixture of sacrilege and socialism. By his own testimony, Father's spark of divinity had ignited into a great flame consuming all other gods. He said that he had come to the world under the guise of religion for the very purpose of destroying religion. And yet many of those who had come to the people's temple from the other churches came with Christianity, and they could say, Why not? In this time... Why not the second coming, this time, this man? Christianity was never based on the idea of an unknown God. I'm going to cause you to know that you are what Jesus was. Jesus said that every human being was a God. That is written that ye are gods. I'm, I'm a, God a God and you're a God. And I'm a God and I'm going to stay a God until you recognize that you're God. And when you recognize you're God, I shall go back into principle and will not appear as a personality. You are God. But until I see all of you knowing who you are, I'm going to be very much what I am. God Almighty God. For most of those who stayed with Jim, who stayed in the People's Temple,
devotion was total. Yet Father demanded, incessantly, expressions of faith and gratitude, and criticism of Jim or the temple was blasphemy and treason. He had saved them from the sin of capitalism. Their salvation would come soon, soon together, under his guidance and protection, they would become dangerous and therefore important. I don't mind losing my life, what about you? I don't mind losing my reputation, what about you? I don't mind, I don't mind being tortured, what about you? I'm just no longer afraid and I've lost interest in this old world of capitalist sin and racism. I've lost interest in it. So if somebody wants to make me stay in it by compromising with filthy minded people that cannot even have respect for somebody that would die for even his enemies and they want to cause anarchy in our midst, I would just as soon bring it all to a gallant of glorious screaming end. Just bring it to a screeching stop in a one glorious moment of triumph. So you think about it. That was an excerpt from Father Cares, The Last of Jonestown. This story came to producer Deb Amos and narrator Noah Adams when author and historian James Reston Jr. walked through the doors of NPR holding over 100 hours of Jim Jones on audio tape, obtained from the FBI. Together, Reston, Adams, and Amos produced the piece that would go on to win the 1982 Pre-Italia and DuPont Columbia Award. Hi, this is Noah Adams. I work for National Public Radio, and I was involved with the production of Father Cares, The Last of Jonestown. I was the narrator, and I co-wrote the script. So I was doing All Things Considered at the time uh, in the early 80s, and so I would do that program, and then... The day would be over, and it would be time to uh, to go do some narration in another studio in the evening. And I would have a slight bit of, I think it was probably Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. just as a mood changer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just to remind me that I was now doing something different. And I played, I would play the soundtrack from Apocalypse Now, The Doors instantly sort of getting into the jungle in Guyana because I was so horrified by hearing this tape. How do you feel about it? You may die tonight. I'm, I'm prepared to die for this family if I have, have to for freedom. Thank you, Dad. Father Cares, The Last of Jonestown, from National Public Radio. And to this day, I, 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 I hate hearing it described as a mass suicide because it was a murder suicide. A story of murder and a story of suicide in the jungle of Guyana. I know it bothered Jim Reston Jr. and anybody who heard a lot of that tape that just that, that things like that can happen. The narrative was designed by James Reston Jr. and Noah Adams to share the consciousness and memory of those who knew what happened in Jonestown. I must tell you, uh, I was the narrator. I have never been comfortable with the way that was done and the decisions that were made regarding that, uh, decisions that, that um, 
I suppose I agreed with at the time because I did it. <laughs> well, well, you, you're talking about the entire concept of the role of the narration, or um, the narration uh, story goes like this: There was a reporter who was started covering the story in the Bay Area of the People's Temple. And he joined the People's Temple. He said, this is great. It's bringing together poor people, people of, of the middle class, upper class, people of all races together in one big common cause. And they are beleaguered by the establishment, and therefore they may have to go away, and they chose to go to Guyana. And so he, he joined the People's Temple and then went to Guyana and then became an apostate. He realized this guy is just insane. So we decided that my narrative stance would be, as an actor, I would be, without describing it, without delineating it, I would be that journalist. I would be the voice of that journalist. And to do that, I removed all inflection from my delivery and came out of the normal rhythm. Yet Father demanded incessantly expressions of faith and gratitude and criticism of Jim or the temple was blasphemy and treason. And while it was effective, uh, I think it was unnecessary. I think the tape was so strong that any narration, just straight, straightforward narration, mm -hmm. uh, would have been just as good, if not, if not better. I'm not sure we added anything uh, with the style of the narrative. But on the other hand, the, the big challenge that we all have with material like this is to make it real. Uh, if you don't make it real, then you've backed away from it. And it could be argued that this helped make it real. I mean, you, you can get pretty deep into this program if you're listening to it. If, you know, it's dark and you've got a candle burning and you're trying to put yourself in the jungle and ma imagine oh, yeah. that screaming. And that response from from the hundreds of people there, well, and that's that's the challenge to make it real. That was Noah Adams, NPR reporter, former host of All Things Considered, and co-producer of Father Cares: The Last of Jonestown. You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're digging into the archives and listening to great public radio from the 70s and 80s. From National Public Radio in Washington. By, by opening its doors, I think it attracted a weird assortment of people who I think finally were a good thing because it was unpredictable and uh, it was defining itself and wide open to what it was as opposed to knowing very clearly what it was and therefore what it wasn't. You may not be familiar with the name Keith Talbot, but you are certainly familiar with a couple of his protégés, Jay Allison and Ira Glass. Keith's trailblazing work at NPR, where he produced an experimental hour-long program called Radio Experience, influenced the sound of public radio in profound ways. Years before the invention of reality TV, Keith believed that ordinary people's life stories could make for compelling radio, and his use of sound and narration was groundbreaking. Here's Ira Glass talking about his mentor 
at the Third Coast Festival Conference in 2002. The reason why I'm in radio is because of a guy named Keith Talbot, who was on staff at National Public Radio in the late 70s up through NPR's financial crisis in the mid-80s. And um, his job at NPR was to invent new ways to do documentaries. Basically, he had, for, for a while, he had a monthly show, and each show had a completely different aesthetic. That is, everything about the show had to be completely different from anything that anyone had ever heard. That was his job. The sound of it had to be different, the music had to be different, the pacing had to be different, and the style of narration had to be different. Uh, this is from a show that he did in 1978 called Ocean Hour. Again, very, very old school. And this is a, just a fantastically beautiful show. Keith was obsessed with the ocean. He grew up a part of the year on Cape Cod. And, um, and did a number of shows about it and had, and had an encyclopedic sort of uh, <laughs> array of various sorts of sounds of the ocean that he had recorded. And, and you'll hear it's just very sound rich. And uh, the narrative device in Ocean Hour, as you'll hear, is another, um, is another, <laughs> is another made up uh, situation where it's him and a friend. And the friend, they've got this incredible segment. It's just like one incredible segment after another. And the glue that takes you from one to another is that the friend when the friend was a kid, had an imaginary friend, and the imaginary friend loved the ocean. That's the, that's the gimmick, <laughs> okay? Okay, well, far be it for me to try and write a better intro than Ira Glass. Here's an excerpt from Ocean Hour. Ocean Hour, with Keith Talbot and Larry Massett, on Options, from National Public Radio. seem like somebody who really understands the ocean, you know, really knows about it. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody is an expert on the ocean that's too big. It's like wondering if anybody's an expert on the planet, you know. Sometimes I, th I think about this, uh, this character, which I just invented, made up in my head. No, maybe it was going to be a book. Maybe it was just kind of a, you know, one of those imaginary friends that you have. <laughs> this was just my alter ego or my imaginary character who spent all of his days with the ocean. Where did he come from? I saw him at, in the first place as a kid and uh, figured that he grew up in one of those beach houses that you see they're built on stilts or pilings, and they're built right by the edge of the ocean, or what the architect thought was the edge of the ocean. And uh, <laughs> in this house, the ocean would actually come up under the house if it was a sufficiently high tide. And you could hear the ocean under the house slapping at the pilings. In fact, if you peek down through the cracks in the 
floorboard, you could see the ocean under there, slapping away, kind of rolling back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. Sometimes it would be just right, and the tide would be coming up just as he was going to bed. You know, that's a great sound to go to sleep to, just like this pier. A lot of people dock up here. Sailboats dock up here. You can hear the clanging of the rigging and uh, the ropes banging up against the metal masts. Last year there was a Chinese junk docked up for a couple of days. That was only in your imagination. No, it was on the other side of the bridge. Whatever happened to his parents? His uh, mother, I always figured, was some sort of scientist. I mean, she was the one who was always telling him facts about the ocean and getting interested in it. I actually got the idea from um, Dr. Fish, actually. Marie Pauling Fish. She's an actual scientist who spent years and years taping fish sounds under the water. It was fish going after fish. She started doing it because during World War II, when they first uh, started using sonar, the sonar people couldn't tell fish sounds from submarine sound. So she spent years taping fish sounds and cataloging them. And uh, they've been doing it for years. I guess there's, they're still doing it, I suppose. We've uh, tried to attract fishes by sound. I have some lovely stories, but I can't tell them to you because they're still top secret of the things that we've done underseas, the sonar. But um, we take a fish or a group of one species put it in a tank or an outside enclosure, and then, what is the hardest thing of all, find out uh, what makes them sound off. We do all kinds of things to, to uh, bother them, giving them a tiny electric current, or frightening them. Many fishes have a territorial sense, and uh, if their territory is invaded, they become vocally angry. I have one wonderful uh, record of a mother whale its baby and was lost actually the baby had died and we'd taken it out of the top of the water and uh, the mother didn't realize it had been taken away from her and it was a nursing baby but she made a sound which we had never recorded 
before or again searching for it. And she went around this outside pen. This was in the Bahamas, Bimini. She'd swim up and down and up and down and make these calling sounds for it. It has been figured that the myth of the Song of the Sirens originated in probably a breeding season chorus of croakers in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it was known by all the ancient mariners, apparently, that uh, it was a warning to secular, and it probably was a very good warning because they would be on a shoal, you see. That was an excerpt from Ocean Hour, produced by Keith Talbot, with original music by Larry Massett. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. If you want to hear longer excerpts of some of these classic NPR stories, see pictures of these producers when they were young, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Shortly after NPR launched All Things Considered in 1971, a little radio show came to life on KUSP in Santa Cruz, California, hosted by Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, a.k.a. the Kitchen Sisters. They have since produced a whole heap of award-winning radio, including Lost and Found Sound with Jay Allison, The Sonic Memorial Project, and most recently, Hidden Kitchens. Their voices are famous in the field, even when they choose not to use them. Telling a story without a reporter's narration was one of the first experiments they tried and succeeded at famously. The first non-narrated story the Kitchen Sisters produced was called The Legend of Ernie Morgan, a portrait of a one-handed pool player living in Texas. Texas is good. Oh, Houston, my city. I love that pool to sleep and eat it. New Orleans, red pool town. Man, I can go there in the morning and play that night, and it's a talk of the town, a big thing. I never touch the rail. Shoot the game up in the midair. That's what they don't believe, how you can do it without a rest. I can't believe it myself, but I'll show you then you'll know. Try to cut the ball in that pocket one-handed, jacked up. What would be the best shot they are one-handed, and it's a very hard shot with two hands. All right, all right. Had an injury in my left hand. I stuck a match in a dynamite cap and blew two fingers and a thumb off, and I figured I didn't have the hand. I'm about to go some other route. All of them play one-handed, they use a rail. They put the cue down on the rail for rest, and that's easy. It's not one-handed, it's cheating. Of course, this is the hardest part this year. I mean, pistol shot. 
I'm 62. I started when I was seven. Then they had these old dumpy pool rooms, you know, with windows green painted up, and you couldn't see in. It had a bad name, pool rooms, you know, reputation of fighting and gambling in there, and cards and dice. It just got in my blood. It's like a man on dope or drinking whiskey, you know. It gets in the blood. He's got to have it. I love it. I'd die if I didn't get to play sometime every day a little bit. The football shot, I'll show you that in a minute. First, we'll rack the balls. I'm going to show you how the Oakland Raiders beat Philadelphia. Going to use the eight ball for the quarterback. Right quick, it was 14 and nothing, Oakland. Touchdown, Oakland! Yeah, I met Ralph Greenleaf, the world's champion, when I was 20. Travel around with him six years, and he showed me what practically what I know. He was a machine, he wasn't a human. Run a thousand full balls without missing. But he died, he was on morphine and dope. Capitelli misses. Someday you'll be the greatest, but I won't be there to see it, Ernie. I'll be dead. So his words came true. Killed himself before I got there. I guess it's a lone, lone hand you have to travel now, you know. So hit the road, started playing exhibition. Hitchhiking. Went around as a one-armed bandit. Finally didn't like that name much and changed it to the greatest ever. That's what they call me now. Yeah, it's a long story, but it's been really been interesting. They're gonna make a movie in Hollywood. Steve McQuinn was gonna play my part, but he died. Now it's gonna be Robert Redford, the legend of Ernest Morgan's name of it. Make you another one. In the picture of the hustler, Paul Newman looked like he was making the shots, but he didn't make them. He's a great actor, but far from being a, a good pool player. So he couldn't make it. He said, what am I gonna do? I can't make this shot. He said, well, we've got a fellow here, Ernest Morgan will make it for you. So here is one of the shots that I made. We'll make the mass The nine ball. Once in a while I miss, as you noticed. If I didn't miss, well, you wouldn't like me at all. All right, all right. TV and hustle all over the country and wants to see you and never forget you. I'm just about burned out. 80 miles from here, I'm going to half a million dollars off a man. I know he's going to have me robbed and killed on the outside. So I can't go. I got to have some machine guns, women, people. It ain't worth it. See, it's going to be bloodshed, somebody's lives to win money. I'll just give it up. Got to be a good fellow, you know. I beat people out of their mind. They're so broke and hungry, I give them back to them. I broke a man with seven children one night. Coldest night in the world in Kansas. Just got his check. Didn't have no groceries and seven kids <laughs> waiting on him. I broke the guy. He cried, dropped down on his knees. I gave him the money back to him. Not bragging, I don't believe there's a pool player in the world would give it back to him, but Ernest Morgan. I really don't believe nobody would give it all back to him.
in this bucket. All right, all right. I didn't get to play these shows and play pool. I would have lived 10 days. That's something that just grows on you and all. It's like you're in love with somebody, which I haven't been. I mean, some woman or man, but that's how strong it is, you know. I wouldn't take nothing for it. <laughs> I'd do it over and over for lived a million years. Nothing like it. The Legend of Ernest Morgan, the world's champion one-handed pool player, was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Uh, this is Davia Nelson, half of the Kitchen Sisters, the other half being Nikki Silva. We have been working together on and off in public radio for some 20,000 years. <laughs> we were two girls, two young women alone in a room. Nobody was using, practically nobody was using the production studio at our radio station. And we would, we just holed up in there for about a year, basically, and taught ourselves how to edit on reel-to-reels and how to mix. And in the beginning, we were just this weird, hermetic little duo. <laughs> we thought we were inventing something. We didn't know any better. We didn't even know about all things considered when we started. I mean, the weird thing is, I was more influenced by rock and roll and FM DJs and music. And I was more influenced, I think, by the Grand Canyon in a weird way, the, the rocks and the way uh, those rocks are layered, um, one formation onto another. Almost like a one-man show of layering of music, of the sound of pool and the beauty of the crack of pool balls is punctuation. I think we've always thought we were making movies. I think we think our microphone's a camera, and we're mostly shooting in close-up. That was Davia Nelson of the Kitchen Sisters, who began producing work with Nikki Silva back in the 1970s. Now, we cannot talk about the legends of public radio, the original thinkers, the founding sound designers, without talking about Joe Frank. Again, Davia Nelson. Joe Frank has been one of those radio, you know, like kind of the light from the lighthouse. It kind of, there's this darkness, and then there's this sort of shimmering light out on the dark water, and then it goes to black again, and then it circles and it's shimmering light, and and there's the work of Joe Frank. There isn't a simple way to sum up Joe's work because it's just so unusual. You have to hear it, not hear it described. That said, I will try and describe it. Probably the best place to listen to Joe Frank is alone, in the dark, maybe driving down the highway in the middle of the Nevada desert. His work deserves an entire classification of its own, like maybe Radio Noir? You're never sure what's fact and what's fiction. And trust me, Joe Frank is not going to help you out by giving you background or context. He drops listeners into scenes mid-conversation and allows them voyeuristically to listen in. Like in our next story, called Arthur and Eleanor, in which we eavesdrop on phone calls between a formerly married, 
now-separated couple. A note to listeners, mature themes ahead, discretion advised. Here's Arthur and Eleanor. sorry. About what? I know I've been making trouble and I've been a nuisance and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please. I'm really sorry. I am. I'm sorry. Are you really? Yes. You gonna stop? Oh, please. Just, just say you don't hate me. Eleanor, I never, I don't hate you. I never hated you. I want you to stop the phone call. They're not good for you. They're not good for me. So are you going to stop him? I will. Arthur, I'll do anything you want me to. I know I've been making a lot of trouble for you, and I know I know you didn't take Wendy and you didn't take Diane. I know that. You wouldn't do that. I know it. I know it. I'm sorry. I said Eleanor, that. will you stop it? Stop what? There is no Wendy. There is no Diane. Oh, Arthur. They don't exist. How can you say that? How can you I can say, say it that? because it's true. Now just stop it. Stop all of it. Stop calling me. Forget about Wendy and Diane. You made them up. And you stop trying to drive me crazy. I don't have to drive you crazy. You are crazy. I'm now not. Say it to me. Say it to me. Arthur, there is no Wendy. There is no Diane. Say it. No. 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 There no. is no Wendy. There is no Diane. There I made is. them up. Say it. It's a lie, and I'm not going to say it. Not for you or anybody else. Goodbye, Eleanor. Speak to Arthur, please. Eleanor. Eleanor, this has got to stop. I mean, I, this can't go on. Surely you're aware of that. May I speak to Arthur, please? Eleanor. Listen, I understand what you are going through, but what you've got to know is that it's not working. None of what you are doing is working. May I speak to Arthur, please? Okay. Arthur! What is it? Arthur, I've been thinking. Yeah, what? I... I would like to come and and visit with you and, and Kathy for a while. Now, now, hear me out. I won't be any trouble. I can do all the things that I'm sure Kathy has no time to do because she has her job, and 
I, I can cook cook nice nice things for you both and and I can clean the house and I can do the gardening and, and, and I can take care of all of the little things that you don't have time to do or that you don't like to do you know Arthur those things and um, and I'll stay I'll stay out of your way I won't say a word if I'm not I'll be sort of a housekeeper a silent housekeeper see see the thing is that I I need uh, I need of I need a family Arthur I could clean the house, I could keep the garden beautiful, and your life would be so much easier. Don't you understand? It would be... What you're suggesting is bizarre. Why? It is absurd. It could work. It could. It could. Arthur and Eleanor, produced by Joe Frank, excerpted from a radio drama called Rent a Family. To hear more stories by Joe Frank and other producers featured on today's show, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Public radio is now, obviously, no longer a little toddler. It is a big, strapping grown-up. And many of its most creative contributors during the developmental years are still in the game, still shaping the medium, and still influencing a future generation of producers. That's radio for you, close to every member of the family. We awaken to it in the morning, we set our clocks by it, we dress according to the weather reports. We listen to radio for news, for entertainment. It keeps us informed every minute of every day. Most of us depend upon radio more than we know. I know because radio has been my life. My name is... ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.